Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's gone. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. At the first and now historic 1967 Monterey International Pop Festival, a volatile vial of nitroglycerin named Janis Joplin blew the rock world wide open. Singing with a tortured passion that has become her trademark, Jen Leash Big Mama Thornton's classic Ball and Chain. And since then, this 26-year-old white girl from Port Arthur, Texas, has gone on to be the first female superstar of rock music. And she is. Will you welcome Janis Joplin? Yeah. Bobby, yeah. 
Within the space of exactly two years, from July the 3rd, 1969 to July the 3rd, 1971, the world of popular music will be rocked by the deaths of not only Janis Joplin, but those of Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison and Alan Wilson of Canned Heat. It has now famously gone down in history that all of these celebrated artists died at the tragically early age of 27. Surprisingly, the idea of the 27 Club didn't capture the public's imagination until nearly 25 years later with the death of Kurt Cobain, and even more recently with that of Amy Winehouse. Wikipedia currently lists over 50 recognised members of the 27 Club. Make of it what you will. One thing is for certain, musician or not, public figure or not, substance misuse issues or not, or whether you, dear listener, as music lovers, appreciated the talents of these individuals. 27 is no age to die. Janice Lynn Joplin, the female icon of 60s counterculture, was born on the 19th of January 1943 in Port Arthur, Texas, into the most conservative of backgrounds. She was the eldest daughter of Dorothy Benita East and Seth Ward Joplin. Seth worked as an engineer at a Texo refinery and Port Arthur is probably best known as an affluent oil town. It's been reported that Janice's early years were far from troublesome, but as she grew into her teenage years it was obvious that Janice was something different, something special. Janice didn't feel that she was a beautiful girl in the classic sense of the word and she'd often question her own desirability. By the first year of junior high she dyed her hair bright orange and was starting to speak out against other people's political beliefs in expressing her natural artistic talents. She enjoyed being different, and she also enjoyed throwing a spanner in the works and upsetting the status quo whenever and wherever possible. Janice was a fan of the beatnik writers such as Allen Ginsberg, and her dress sense and beliefs would soon start to reflect this. You must remember that at this time, particularly in the South, Segregation was still going on. Integration was a major issue with the segregated schools. Blacks and whites would not and could not meet. But young Janice Joplin was curious. She spoke out in class about the racism that was part of everyday life. 
and this in turn led to a backlash at the school where her classmates would start to turn against her. My pillow, cold grounds my bed, blue skies my blanket, moonlight's my spread. I'm not ashamed, ain't that blue? I've been living with the blue. By the time Janice reached 16, she had begun to find a new outlet for a rebellious streak, and that was in the form of music. She would often travel over the border to Louisiana to visit clubs with her rebellious friends to listen to music that would sing out to her. Cajun, Zydeco, but mainly the blues. Her musical heroes would be artists such as Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey and Lead Belly, along with admiration for Odetta, Billie Holiday and Big Mama Thornton. Whilst in Louisiana, she would also start the occasional fight or be the cause of arguments. That would often lead to her and her friends having to beat a hasty retreat back across the border. She loved to play the bad girl. But to her folks back home, Janice's associations with the bad crowd, her frequent misbehaviour and her failure to disassociate herself with the black population led to a belief that she was heading down the road to disaster. Tensions increased within the Joplin family. Arguments were frequent and often quite nasty. But Janice would not back down. She was not going to be a school teacher or a full-time wife and mother, which was expected of her. In an interview a few years later, Janice stated that she started singing at the age of about 17 and she surprised herself and her few friends at the quality and the range of her vocal talents. The first recording of Janice was made while she was an art student at the University of Texas at Austin in December and was her version of What Good Can Drinking Do. Uh, this is a song called What Good Can Drinking Do that I wrote one night after drinking myself into a stupor. Soon after, Janice found the perfect outlet for her singing by performing at folk clubs, and particularly at a bar called Threadgills, which soon became her second home. Janice's behaviour on campus continued to shock, and she was reportedly the first woman there to go about without wearing a bra. There was also plenty of hostility, especially when the frat boys voted her the ugliest man on campus, which totally devastated her. Mm-hmm. 
But Janice, who by now had just turned 20, put all of her previous problems, worries and cares behind her. She needed to be where she could be among like-minded people who would appreciate her for who she truly was. So she upsticks and moves to California. In 1963, San Francisco was something different. It was a place unlike any other in America. It was a free and easy city where the beatnik children of Kerouac and Ginsburg were living out their final days. Still involved in protesting against segregation, Janice would meet a young black girl called Jay Whittaker. Romance soon blossomed between the two, and Janice would move in not too long after. Jay recalled that Janice liked relationships with girls not as a means to shock, but that was just what she was truly feeling at the moment. Jay recognised the inner conflict and unhappiness that Janice was going through, and that being on stage would make her feel like a somebody with something to offer. But they soon realised that things were not working out between them, as Janice's free and easy nature meant that she wanted to go off and do things with other people. Jay was not strong enough to deal with it, and they eventually broke up remaining friends. Folk music and amphetamines were two of the key ingredients of the beat scene, and Janice would soon willingly partake in both when she took up a singing residency at a bar called the Coffee Gallery. Love soon followed again as she got herself a boyfriend, Peter de Blanc. Like the crowd she was now mixing with, Janice began to inject methadrine and was drinking heavily. At the same time she was getting well-deserved recognition as a singer, the drug began to take over and she was becoming addicted. Track marks were evident on her arms. She lost so much weight that friends thought she could die at any moment and if they were being honest, she looked like death warmed up. Weighing a mere 87 pounds and looking like hell, her friends decided to throw what was known as a bus ticket party and they raised the money to send her back to Texas on a greyhound before it was too late. Janice realised possibly for the first time in her life that she had pushed things too far and very nearly paid the ultimate price. She returned home to her family with news that she was engaged to Peter. She vowed to enrol in college again, give up the singing, the drugs and the booze and start afresh, totally embracing the life that her family had always envisioned for her. first time since her early teenage years, Janice was actually listening to her friends and family, and she was asking for help. And things went well. 
there were no arguments, life was pleasant within the Joplin household, and Janice was doing everything she could to please her mother and be that good all-American girl that she had always wanted her to be. Peter was invited to Port Arthur to meet the family, where he formally asked Janice's father for a hand in marriage. The engagement continued at a distance, with Janice writing to him on an almost daily basis and sending gifts to him, and in short, Janice was gradually preparing herself to settle down into Texan married life. Janice waited, and waited, and waited. What Janice didn't know was that Peter was living with another woman who was also pregnant with his child. She saw her childhood friends and classmates get married and settle down with children. And still she waited. The stark truth was finally revealed one day when Janice called Peter and his girlfriend answered the phone. Eventually, Janice, realising that perhaps this may have been the worst decision of her life, approached a friend about finding a venue for her to sing at. And Janice sang again for the first time in months at a gig in Austin. Janice was petrified, not only about performing again, but she was more afraid that if she were to start singing again, the drugs would soon follow. But as her confidence increased and her notoriety increased, the lure of California proved to be irresistible once again. Janice would write a letter to her parents from San Francisco informing them that she had returned there. She said that she was aware of their fears and she was fully aware of them herself and she apologised for leaving without letting them know. Janice had only been away from San Francisco for just over a year, but within that short period of time the scene had changed completely. The beatniks were finally extinct. And in their place was a new group of kids whose drug of choice was LSD. Once LSD had been introduced into the San Francisco beat scene, it served as a supercharged catalyst for creativity. It was said that you could walk down Hate Street, strike up a conversation with a stranger about Buddhism or life on Mars, and that conversation could go on for hours as if it was the most natural thing in the world. Big Brother and The Holding Company were a group of former folk musicians who, like Bob Dylan, had swapped their acoustic guitars for electric ones and were now adopting the new psychedelic sound. They were missing a lead singer, and Janice was invited to join the band. The Big Brother sound had this almost persistent drive and impetus that produced what had been described by some as an out-of-body experience. Once you added Janis Joplin to the mix, you got a new spark and an energy that elevated the sound into something a little bit special. Janice 
Janice impressed the band with her intelligence. She was quick, she was funny, she had a great mind. You could talk with her about philosophical issues, current affairs, movies or art, and she was fully aware of what was going on around her. Joplin loved the San Francisco music scene. She loved the freedom that permitted her to create. Other musicians that were already here or would soon follow found themselves having the freedom to create something new, their own style of music. Things were going well, but the shadow of drugs that had very nearly killed Janice was hanging low like a dark black cloud. Janice avoided drugs as best she could, mainly due to constant badgering by keyboard player Stephen Ryder. In the beginning, Janice told fellow band members that if there were any signs of drugs, she would be gone. She wanted no part of it. One day, fellow band member Dave Getz drove her home. Getz had promised Janice that there would be no needles in their rehearsal space or any of the homes of the band. When they arrived at Janice's apartment, they found her fellow roommates injecting mescaline. Janice went nuts. She started screaming at Getz, telling him that he'd broken his promise to her. She threw them out of the room. She was that afraid of returning to the previous lifestyle that had almost cost her her life. Janice moved in with the band. They would work hard on new songs and she would write home sometimes more than once a week informing her family that life was good and that she had stopped taking her tranquilizers. Life certainly was good at this time for Janice. She enjoyed reading the positive reviews and encouraging feedback that their performances were gathering. But a lot of the reviews would often tend to focus on just one person, Janice herself and not the band as a whole. This began to create a sense of resentment within the band. Other members of Big Brother thought she was on some kind of star trip, while some of her other friends were encouraging her to leave the band. How are your press relations? Do you have any problems with um, interviews and that kind of stuff? Well, other than having to do them when you don't feel like it, yeah. and other than having to talk to someone who doesn't seem to understand what you're saying, mm -hmm. consequently the words coming out a little stranger than you meant them, no. No. <laughs> Friends recall how Janice had a tremendous ego and a sense of self-worth, but contrastingly she possessed the lowest self-esteem and feeling that she was the biggest piece of shit in the world. Janice's emotions were at their most extreme when men were concerned. She would struggle to believe that men liked her and that she was appealing to the opposite sex. But often, when her feelings towards potential lovers were reciprocated, that would be a time when things would get blown out of proportion. Did you ever see... Those mule carts? Yeah. They, uh, there's a dumb mule up there, right? And they have a long stick with a string and a carrot hanging in it. And they hang this thing out in front of the mule's nose. Mm -hmm. And he runs after it all day long. And, and Some, who's the man in this, in this parable? The mule or the, the uh, person no. holding the carrot? 
The the woman is the is the mule, and chasing the man, something that somebody's always teasing. Constantly chasing her a man. Yeah. Who always eludes her? Well, they just always hold up something more than they're prepared to give. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're gonna have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. Country Joe MacDonald and the Fish, heard here during their famous appearance at the Woodstock Festival in 1969. A few years before this performance, Janice had fallen in love with Joe. Today, Joe claims they weren't in love but just good friends. Whatever the case, it would be one of the few relationships that would last any length of time for her. And at the same time, it was a struggle as she battled her insecurities. But also, Janice was quite bold and daring when it came to finding lovers. For many years, since her college days, Janice had been experimenting sexually, and Peggy Caserta was one such companion. Peggy recalled many years later that the relationship just seemed to work. They had a lot of fun together. And at the same time, it probably wasn't what people may look at today as a lesbian relationship. They were compatible and wild and interested in one another. The San Francisco scene began to get noticed first in America, then across the world, as people began to become aware of this strange group of mainly white kids from well-off families who professed about peace and love smack bang in the middle of the Vietnam War. media would name it the counterculture. Sitting atop this group almost like its queen was Janis Joplin, the archetypal middle-class non-conformist. As an elected spokesperson for the counterculture movement, Janis would find herself at odds with it as it was fundamentally founded on LSD. Janice's drug of choice was alcohol, and she was also unfashionably determined. She was in this for the long haul, she knew where she was going. Whilst others were stumbling about in a psychedelic haze, she was figuring out how to be this professional, ambitious, driven person.
In June 1967, just down the coast from San Francisco, a three-day pop festival would take place in Monterey. It was notable for the first major American appearances by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, The Who and Ravi Shankar, along with the introduction of Otis Redding. It was also the first large-scale performance for Janis Joplin, along with the rest of the Big Brother Holding Company. Also appearing were the Mamas and the Papas, as well as Janis's good friends the Grateful Dead. This was the platform that Janis had been longing for. She had always wanted to be a star, and this was her opportunity to shine. Three or four years ago, on uh, one of my perennial hitchhikes across the country, I ran into a chick in Texas by the name of Janice Joplin. And uh, I heard her sing, and Janice and I hitchhiked to the West Coast. Fifty hours it took us, probably the fastest trip across country we ever made. A lot of things have gone down since that time and this, but it gives me a great deal of pride to present today the finished product of three or four years of work, Big Brother and the Holding Company. performed twice at the festival, not because as people originally believed that her performance was that good, but because her first performance had not been filmed. Her set was electrifying, and when you watch the footage now, it can literally send a shiver down the spine. Three stars were born at the Monterey International Pop Festival, Jimi Hendrix, Otis Redding, and Janis Joplin. All will tragically be dead within the next three years, reading within six months. Pretty soon after Monterey, the band was signed up by Albert Grossman, who also managed Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary. They were also signed up to Columbia Records and embarked on a nationwide tour. 
Great retention from the press soon followed, although it seemed to focus again mainly on Janice. Janice knew how to work the press and she would often give reporters exactly what they wanted to hear. They were living the rock and roll dream. And as is often the case, with a gruelling schedule of gigs, travelling and interviews, some of the bands started to use heroin. And Janice would join them. What started as experimentation and a bit of fun soon turned into a need to mask out the pressures that touring and performing was pushing on the band. Janice's attitude was that if something felt this good it couldn't be all that bad, surely. Addiction swiftly followed and it was no longer fun anymore. In the spring of 1968, Janice and Big Brother went to New York to record their second album. What had previously been a close-knit, almost family-like atmosphere was starting to crumble. Tensions were high and tempers were becoming frayed. The product of these New York recording sessions was the album Cheap Thrills, which was released in August 1968, and it sold over a million copies in its first month. Critics adored Janice, but not so much the band. Big Brother began to fall apart, and mid-tour, Janice announced she was planning to quit. The pressure became unbearable. After backstage fighting and onstage insults, Albert Grossman decided that Janice needed a new band. And this time, Janice would not be invited to be lead singer, it would be her band, a band that would play her kind of music. The guilt racked Janice. She would listen to her manager, a manager whose decision was to sacrifice Big Brother in order to save her and make her the star that she'd always wished to be. so Janice had a new band. The Cosmic Blues Band featured a lineup that was totally different to the San Francisco sound she'd been used to. It was a soul band designed and put together with Janice in mind. Things didn't quite work out and Janice was afraid that she'd made the wrong choice. The problem was this soul band featured a lot of horns, and they were competing with Janice. The whole thing was too heavy and overblown and it didn't feel quite right. No no 
she was bitterly disappointed. The alcohol issues and the drug use escalated. It was a chaotic time for Janice as she'd lost the comfort of the family that was Big Brother and she felt pressured into being the one that had to make the decisions now. Max Yazga was the owner of a 600-acre dairy farm. The farm was in the Catskills near the hamlet of White Lake, which in turn was in the town of Bethel. Bethel, which is in Sullivan County, lies 43 miles southwest of the town of Woodstock, New York. And it was here, from August 15th to August 19th, 1969, 32 acts performed before an audience of 400,000 people. The event was billed as an Aquarian Exposition Three Days of Peace and Music. Officially, it was billed as the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair. Most people now just refer to it as Woodstock, and it became the greatest kick in the arse and wake-up call that the establishment will receive up to this point in history. For those of you who have forgotten, for those of you who haven't forgotten, and for those of you who never knew. By the time we got to Woodstock. Woodstock. An incredible film about an incredible event is back. Man, there's supposed to be a million and a half people here by tonight. Can you dig that? It's really amazing. You know, it looks like some kind of uh, biblical, epical, unbelievable scene. Woodstock, with a cast of a half a million outrageously friendly people. Uh, do you want me to explain it in plain English? It's a dirty mess. Woodstock, the people, the vibes, the music. Swing along. Country Joe, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Richie, Jimmy, Hendrix, and John Sebastian, Sean Sly, and the Family Stone, The Who. Woodstock, where it all began. So, how, I mean, uh, how are you out there? Are you out? Are you okay? You're not, uh, yeah, you're staying stoned and you got enough water and you got a place to sleep and everything. What does that mean? 
<laughs> because, you know, because we ought to, all of us, you know, I don't mean to be preachy, but we ought to remember, and that means promoters too, that music's for grooving, man, and music's not for putting yourself through bad changes. You know, I mean, you don't have to go take anybody's shit, man, just to like music. You know what I mean? You don't. So, uh, so if you're getting more shit than you deserve, you know what to do about it, man. You know, it's just music. Music's, music's supposed to be different than that. Culturally, musically, politically, it's almost impossible to explain to the kids of today just how significant this event was. When you hear the term hippie, it's almost always going to conjure up images from those four days on that dairy farm in New York. Day one would open with Richie Havens, finish with Joan Baez and feature acts such as Melanie Rabishanka and Arlo Guthrie. Janice herself was billed on day two. This particular Saturday would see the first of two performances by Janice's former boyfriend, Country Joe, and would also play host to Santana, Canned Heat, The Grateful Dead, Credence Clearwater Revival, Sly and the Family Stone and The Who. The third day would include Joe Cocker and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and the final day would be rounded off by the now legendary performance by Jimi Hendrix. Peggy Caserta was flown in to be with Janice during the festival. Other band members were fearful of her influence over Janice, especially when it came to drug taking. As the day wore on, Janice became more nervous at the realisation that she would be performing before such a large audience. This, combined with her set being pushed further and further back as the preceding groups overran, Janice was backstage for 10 hours. Janice didn't take to the stage until 2am, and the band's fears were soon realised when it became apparent that Janice had been drinking and shooting up prior to her set and was too high to go on. Eventually, Peggy and John Cook had to push Janice on stage. Although Janice's performance was not included on the legendary movie that was released documenting the festival, allegedly at the insistence of Joplin herself, footage of her performance does exist, and you don't have to look too closely to see that she was certainly under the influence of something that night. But the performance, as always, was just something to behold, and one of the many highlights of those legendary four days in Sullivan County, which we'll be covering in a little more depth in a later episode. Six months after Woodstock, Janice, accompanied by her friend Linda Gravanites, travelled to Brazil for a brief vacation. It was here that for a short time at least her drug and alcohol use stopped. This was partly due to a new romance, a student from Cincinnati called David Nyhouse, who was taking time off from law school. 
The romance and the realisation that she didn't have to perform 365 days a year relaxed Janice for the first time in what seemed like forever, and drugs became a distant memory. But this brief respite didn't last long. Her relationship with Nighthouse broke up soon after their return to the United States when he witnessed her shooting drugs in her new home at Larksburg, California. This, combined with her romantic relationship with fellow addict Peggy Caserta and her refusal to take time off to travel the world with him, soon paved the way for the end of their romance. Janis Joplin famously said that she made love to 25,000 people on stage then went home alone. The struggle for being a woman in a predominantly man's world continued to take its toll and the drinking and the drug taking just continued. Janice would eventually mask her true self behind a flamboyantly dressed alter ego that she had created for herself and named Pearl. Do you ever get back to Port Arthur, Texas? No, but I'm going back next in August, man. I guess what I'm doing. I don't know. Next I'm going to my 10th annual high school reunion. Oh, I want to take movies and bring them back here. Hey, and show would you like us, to go? Yeah. Well, I, I don't remember. I don't have that many friends in your high school class. Or, I don't either. Or mine for that. Matter. I don't either. Believe <laughs> you don't either. <laughs> and do you think you'll have a lot to say to your old high school classmates? I'm gonna laugh a lot. <laughs> Were you not uh, surrounded by friends in high school? They laughed me out of class, out of town, and out of the state. Hmm. So I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> In 1970, Janice decided it was time to confront some of her demons and lay the ghosts that had haunted her for most of her adult life to rest. In the guise of the extravagant Pearl, she returned home to Port Arthur. Janice arrived in full flowing stage gear, floppy hat and long flowery scarves, accompanied by her equally colourful entourage. Cameras recorded her homecoming and it proved too much for conservative Mr and Mrs Joplin, who left town for the day, rather than see their daughter confront those that had belittled and ridiculed her all those years before. She had been invited back to attend her 10-year high school reunion, and boy was she going to show them. When asked by reporters what she missed about Port Arthur, Janice just replied, no comment. And as the questions continued... A raw nerve was exposed as the memories of all the bad times at Port Arthur hit her and she visibly began to crumble as she recalled not going to football games or being invited to the prom. Her dramatic gesture of defiance had backfired on her and worse was to come later that evening when her mother returned home and watched the whole episode unfold on TV. Mrs Joplin was infuriated as she felt embarrassed by the disgrace that was her daughter. She confronted Janice the following morning, and according to Janice, she told her that she wished she'd never been born, the ultimate rejection. Say, so you've got a group now, and naturally, as you can see, Janice was not on stage alone, and I never mentioned... Their, their name. name. Yeah, it's, it's important. Name. It's sort of silly. It's I mean, to slough them off. Full like... Tilt Boogie. 
Full Tilt Boogie is the actual name of the group? Janis yeah. Joplin and? No, just Janis Joplin Full Tilt Boogie. One long word. Yeah. What does the title mean? Anything uh, hard to... What does the title mean? It means... Yeah. Boogie! Yeah. The, but where does the phrase Full Tilt Boogie come from? Is that from, a, from a friend of mine who walked into the dressing room one night and said, Is everybody ready for Full Tilt Boogie? Yeah? What if he'd yelled something horrible? Would you have called the group that? He yells a lot of horrible things, and we just picked that one. <laughs> That's good. From amongst the many things he says. In September 1970, Janice went to Los Angeles to record her next album, entitled Pearl, accompanied by her new band, Full Tilt Boogie. Things again were working out. good and Janice was off the drugs again. Janice and the band enjoyed each other's company and they were all staying at the same hotel. For the first two weeks of her stay at the hotel Janice was unaware that Peggy Caserta had also checked in there. And she, unlike Janice at the time, was still using heroin. One night during their stay Janice went to see Peggy in her room and begged for her to get high with her. Peggy at first refused as Janice had been clean for a while, but Janice just said, well, she could get drugs with or without Peggy's help, and Peggy finally relented. And so, Janice was again trapped under the addictive spell of heroin. On October the 4th, 1970, Janice had been listening to some of the new material with the band at the LA studio. She finished at about 10pm and left with Ken Pearson, one of her bandmates. They went off to a local bar, Barney's Beanery, and got drunk. She returned alone to the hotel at about 12.30. Janice failed to show up for the recording session the following day and her body was found in her room by the band's road manager, John Cook. Janice had overdosed before, but on this particular night she was alone, and there would be no one to bring her around. The coroner fixed the time of death at 1.40am. Over the years there have been unsubstantiated stories that she was not alone at the time, and that the drugs she used were more potent than normal. 
One thing for certain is that she was seen by the night porter at 1am and it would be another 18 hours before her body would be discovered. The Pearl album was released six weeks after her death and went to number one in the US chart. Featuring the Bobby Womack pen Trust Me, Me and Bobby McGee, and the final song that Janice would record, Mercedes-Benz, it would stay on the charts for a further 14 weeks. Janice Joplin was cremated in the Westwood Village Mortuary in Los Angeles. Her ashes were scattered from a plane into the Pacific Ocean and along Stinson Beach. There was a private funeral service and it was only attended by a few close members of the family. In a will, Janice left a couple of thousand dollars for her friends to celebrate after she had gone. And on the tickets were printed, the drinks are on Pearl. Next time, why don't you join me as I take you back to 1963 to tell the story of an outrage that involves sex, Russian spies and the Secretary of State for War. A scandal that rocked Britain in the early 60s and led to the resignation of a Prime Minister and the toppling of the government. See you next time for the story of the Profumo Affair. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group, visit our website rainbowvalley.org or send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. You can also email me at that address and I'll send you a bonus mixtape episode featuring music relating to today's show. This has been a Stinking Paws production. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amens. Worked hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. So oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing four dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. So oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Prove that you love me and buy the next round. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? Everybody, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes?